What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets Sub Podcast, the first episode of the 2023 season. We are so pumped to be talking to you guys about meaningful baseball. These games matter. And boy, oh boy, did the Mets show up out in Miami, winning three of four, taking the first series of the year again. I mean, we know how good this team is on opening day, but it's nice to see them play a full series and play so well or as well as they did. We're going to tell you everything about every single game that you guys want to know. We're here to hang out with you guys. 30, 45, 50 minutes, whatever it is. We're talking baseball. It feels really good to be back. And James, I know you're excited to be back too, right? Very excited to be back. You guys, if you're watching on YouTube, you see me in my parents' house, the room I grew up in, the room where we built the Mets Up podcast. And I was still living with my parents. Me and Mark started this show. All the memorabilia behind me. We got, we got Delgado. We have Reyes, I have Clyde Frazier, Darrell Rivas, Andy Chavez, Keith Hernandez, Doc Gooden all down there. It's a whole big spectacle of sports. I love it. Real New Yorkers talking about the Mets. We're super excited, guys. Before we get going into the episode, remember, if you like what you're listening to or hearing, or if you want to just you know keep in touch with us, follow us on our social media, at MetsUp on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. A lot of content going to be coming out this season, so you're going to want to make sure you follow as well as we do giveaways over there. So, you want to win some free stuff, that's a good place to be. If you want the YouTube version of this, make sure you go to the New York Mets YouTube channel. Subscribe over there after every series we drop a new episode, and it will go up on the YouTube channel as well. And if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever it is, drop us a rating, drop us a review, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That is probably the most important thing you can do so that whenever an episode comes out, sometimes they're going to be coming out early in the morning for you guys, it will go right to your phone. You'll be able to listen to it. So without further ado, James, you're ready to get into some recaps about some games. Absolutely. Regular season episodes make me feel really warm inside. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it. Everyone's excited to hear about it on Twitter too. And this was just a great series for the Mets. Just looking at it overall, took three or four from the Marlins. Very important to take that to win a series against a team that's supposed to be at the bottom of your own division, even though divisional stuff means less now because we're playing them less, but yada, 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 no big deal. Really happy to beat a team that we know we're better than. Yeah, we. I think the word we used for the Marlins in the preview was pesky. They yes. were pesky. They, they definitely pesky. were pesky, but at the end of the day, you see they have a real inability to score runs, and it's just simply because there's just not a lot of power coming into that lineup, and there's just not a lot of particularly that great of hitters either, honestly. Let's be honest, the lineup's not that great. Yeah, and we said that something big this series would be being able to take advantage of the Marlins, not so good bullpen, and the team did that as a whole as well. And super cool that we're getting the Marlins for these seven games at the beginning of the season, theoretically before Jazz Chisholm learns how to play center field because he didn't know what he was doing. I'm so glad you brought that up. I love Jazz Chisholm. He's one of the coolest young players in the game. He's extremely talented. This is not a slight at him. This is more love of a slight at the Marlins because in what planet did they think that putting a guy who had never played center field, which is arguably the hardest position to play in baseball, we saw Brandon Nimmo, who is a lifetime outfielder, the time that it took for him to get to where he's at now. There are some guys who played it their entire life and still stink at it. Jazz Chisholm never played it, and he couldn't look worse out there. Not to, wow. again, not to really dump on Jazz here. He's learned a new positions, nothing on him. But my God, I mean, that's one of the craziest decisions I've ever seen because he made, I mean, easy plays look unbelievably difficult. He can get to more balls than us, me and you, in terms of range, just because he's unbelievably fast. But I'm confident we could catch more balls than him in center field. It's it's like his hands don't work out there. No, it was also more than that. It was angular. Like, he just hasn't played very much outfield. So he doesn't exactly have the sense of knowing exactly where the ball is going yet and how to get yeah. there. I'm sure once the Savant stats populate over this next couple of days, we'll see Jazz Chisholm's path to ball time be one of the worst <laughs> in the entire league because just he's just a guy who's not an outfielder. Just right now, right now, he's infielder trying to play the outfield. I don't have any doubt that eventually he'll get there, but maybe even this season because he's such a freak. But really cool that we were able to take advantage yes. of the first four games he played out there, getting to turn some singles to doubles, doubles to triples, and just get extra runs in places that we could. No, it's great, too, especially like in game one when you have Max Scherzer on the mound who is absolutely dealing up until that last inning. Getting, the, getting those runs is nice. It gives us a nice lead, gives us a nice cushion. And, I mean, he was disgusting through those first four innings. I believe he faced the minimum. And up until, what, it was the sixth inning? He didn't really even find himself in any sort of trouble. No, yeah, you're right. Max Scherzer did face the minimum through four innings. No Marlin reached second base until the sixth inning, too, which is pretty cool. And then they had that little rally capped off by the Garrett Cooper home run, who's in a team that's full of Mets killers. He's a habitual Mets killer. Even a guy who, like, hitting in the middle of that order is sneaky, looks like he could put himself in position for a good year. He's always yeah. been a good hitter, just can't really stay healthy, never had a good no. enough glove to get near a lineup until right now. But overall, Max, six innings, six strikeouts, two walks, three earns, four hits. Wasn't like he was super sharp early. That sixth inning got away from him against a lefty like Garrett Cooper and susceptible to long balls. We know from Max Scherzer, but 
you got to say it was a good start overall for Mad Max. Yeah, watching the game, noticing what was going on. Like the first few innings, he was sharp. That fastball, he was getting the swings and misses. The slider was money. Even threw in a couple curveballs that made the Marlins hitters look like, oh my God, I didn't know that you were going to throw this. A little bit later in the game, like you said, just started to get hit. The slider got a little bit more flat, but that's going to happen early in the season. As we know, Scherzer, this is a, this is a long season. And to, to have a start like that, game one, really important for the Mets, especially you know with the news that happened a little bit earlier in the day too. Yeah, for sure. It was a kind of a blow to all the Mets fans on Thursday afternoon. We found out Justin Verlander would start the season on the IL with a, an injury that the name of it definitely is worse yes. than it is because the part of his shoulder that got hurt was the Terrace Major, but it's a minor strain of the Terrace Major. So you got to listen to the minor, ignore the major. But he was still throwing over the weekend. Everything looks minor. Just got just to gotta roll with it. Seems like he'll be back soon. He seemed very like contrite when he was talking about it. He seemed like yeah. more frustrated than upset, which I thought was kind of a good thing to hear as a fan coming through. But Again, good to see Max deal and us play overall a good game on opening day with that, especially Mets top of the order really showed up. Nimmo, Marte, and Francisco Lindor combined for eight hard-hit balls. Francisco Lindor drove in the first run of the season with a sacrifice fly and a well-struck shot. And then Brand Nimmo broke the tie in the top of the seventh after Max had given up the lead in the bottom of the sixth with a two-run double. So really good to see our table setters, our igniters, have a good game to start the season. Yeah, I mean, just in general starting the year, Sterling Martez looks so good, so good at the top of the order. And for a guy who, you know, didn't necessarily get as much spring training in as we had hoped just because he was coming back from the double groin surgery or whatever was going on with him in the offseason, him looking good, Nimmo looking good, Lindor obviously still swinging the bat well. Maybe like the average number is as high as you'd like, but it's a four-game sample, so we know that's like absolutely nonsense. But at the end of the day, like those guys being able to get on base like they had, hit the ball hard, to set up for a guy like Pete Alonso in the middle of this order is so incredibly important. It's, we talked about it. I mean, we we have a meme completely waiting and ready in the in the wings for whenever like Mets fans inevitably get like a little upset about the offense after one game. But the lineup is good. They're gonna score runs, and we saw it all series long outside of the one game. And we'll talk about this when we do like the full. We have a lot of stats like down at the bottom of the outline. I just don't want to scroll right now because I don't want to mess up the flow. But the Mets were taking great at bats all series. The Mets weren't striking out all series, just making the Marlins pitch and pitch and pitch. By the end of the series, we were deep into their bullpen. Wascar Brazoban look was a was old news by then. And it was just that that's what this team does. They just get you and get you and get you. And I feel like a lot of Mets fans forgot how we well we grinded through last season. Just Me getting after all these pitchers day after day. You could literally see it on Sandy Alc Alcantara's face. It was like, at some point, he's like, can these guys just like get out? Can they just like go down one, two, three? Like I'm having to throw a lot of pitches every at bat. And you can see it gets frustrating. And especially with the pitch clock. I don't know. There was another team that was talking about this. Might have even been the Marlins. But how now, like in, in previous innings, you could you could take your time. You could walk around the mound. You could kind of like mentally get over maybe some of like the frustrating stuff that a team like the Mets has been doing. But with the pitch clock now, you just have to keep throwing and stuff can kind of snowball. And it felt like that was a little bit with Sandy Alcantara in this game because he didn't have a moment to breathe. He had to just keep pitching. And at some point, the Mets got to him. Definitely. And again, long innings, long innings. I thought that was going to happen in game two with Lazar, though. It looked like he totally yeah. ran out of gas there a time through two. We'll get to that in a second. But I kind of like you're talking about Sandy Alcantara because if you remember, there was a game last year, the first time we faced him all year. It might have been the first time we faced the Marlins, which happened to be in June or late May. <laughs> and it was Sunday afternoon, which is so funny that this year we're going we're gonna to get rid of all the Marlins games the second week of April. But Sandy threw like an eight-inning gem against the Mets on Sunday afternoon. And we were like, wow, we're going we're gonna to face this guy so much. We're going to crush him. Since that game, the Mets have won three out of four games against Sandy. Wow. They made him throw 96 pitches in less than six innings in this game, and we have 11 earned runs in those last four games and only 24 and two-thirds innings against Sandy. That's a four ERA. This guy's ERA was barely two all season last year. So it seems like after that one game that got to him, something that the Mets are doing, the way we take at-bats, the way we fight pitches off, the way we don't really let him be in control on the mound, we're able to do something the rest of the league can't do to Sandy Alcantara, and it's pretty awesome that the best pitcher kind of the kind best of, pitcher, yeah. one of the best pitchers not on our team in our division. <laughs> this, we, this division is so stacked with pitching. It's so like kind of hard to pick who's the best. Sandy is great, but the fact that we can get after another team's ace like that, who we play more often than other teams in the league, is really comforting and cool. So comforting. So comforting. Because you look at the schedule and you see the Marlins, you should beat them, but then you see Sandy and you're like, oh, that's a tough game. Still is tough. I'm not going to say that we own Sandy Alcantara because that would be that would be nonsense. That would be insane. Yeah. We're bragging about forcing a four ERA in 25 innings. We make him look human. That's what it is. Sandy Alcantara looks like a human against the Mets, which I will take that. I just I want more humans pitching against the Mets. I don't want any more of these robots like Sandy. But another really big thing in this game too, how, how nice and easy was it with the bullpen? How awesome Amazing. was it to see Drew Drew flow, Drew change, Drew come right into the game, shut it down. How about 
Brooks Raley. How easy of an inning was that from Brooks Raley? Like, especially with the pitch clock, I looked, I'm like, oh, it's over. This inning's over. That was like the most stress-free inning, honestly, I've felt in a very long time. I wish we actually had the clock time on that inning because it felt like it took three minutes. And then David Robertson coming in, who looks like based on the usage in opening weekend, it seems like he is probably something that's going to resemble the closer of this team. Something like we predicted, something like everyone kind of knows was happening beforehand. It does look like him. And something else cool about Robertson and Brooks Raley at the end of games, while one's a lefty and one's a righty, they each look so capable against hitters of the opposite hand just because of how much breaking stuff they throw. And between the two of them, there were almost no straight fastballs thrown. Cutters, curveballs, sliders. That's something that I think is kind of cool for pitchers that late in the game because that fastball is going to be pitched just more susceptible to the long ball. And we do see Drew Smith throw the fastball. His fastball has that amazing hop that just like defies gravity. But very cool that these guys who are going to be high leverage pitchers for us have repertoires that are great against both sides of the plate and that limit the long ball. No, it was it was awesome to see. We also had that weird little McNeil Alonzo thing in game one, too, that I feel like we should briefly talk about where McNeil got called for a violation strike. of the pitch clock, got a called strike on him because Pete Alonzo didn't get back to first base quick enough. It was deemed that the umpires ruled incorrectly. They're supposed to just basically tell Pete to hurry it up. I mean, we, we know the deal. Buck knows all the rules. Buck knows all the rules. It's it's amazing that we've imagined knows the rules better than the umpires because Buck walked on the field immediately and said you're wrong. And the Buck got yeah. in the press conference after the game. He was like, you guys will see you later once MLB makes a ruling. They were completely wrong about that. So yeah. this rule's been in existence. That was the first day it's been in existence. It existed for like a couple hours of Mets world. And Buck was like, <laughs> I know it's better than you. You're never going to get anything by Buck when we spoke to him. Like, how do you know all the rules? He's like, I just like, it's kind of my job. Like, I, I kind of need to know this stuff. I just, whatever's interesting, I'm going to find out. And we saw it happen there as well. Johnny Stats, he's not with us yet on the screen, but he's dropping stats in the chat. He told us the Brooks Raley inning was four minutes. That's so incredibly fast. And some more Johnny Stats stats. The Mets just are like the greatest opening day team in baseball history by a lot. After the win on Thursday, the Mets were 41-21 on opening day. And that includes eight consecutive opening day losses for the franchise. So they didn't even win an opening day until 1970. So the Mets are 41 and 13 in their last 54 opening days since 1970, which is just one of the craziest stats in the world. And again, this was a very nece necessary win. Scherzer looked good. Top of the order hit well. Bullpen was solid. Just coming off the Justin Furlander thing because this, this there was a couple of hours where Mets fans were spiraling. I was kind of lost in myself. And it was just like, I, I don't like how this feels right now. But once this all happened, I was like, okay, we're back to baseball. All like on what's on the field matters more. Yeah, and I, I think there were some Mets fans hate watching another game too that were pretty happy with one of the outcomes that happened. Maybe in a, the state of Texas. I, I don't know. We'll just Possibly. briefly mention that. Yeah, could have could have been hate watching. I don't know. But game one, great start to the season, led into a bit of what we like to call on this podcast a poop fest in game two. It was I, we we got it out early last year. I think it took a while for us to technically get a poop fest. For those of you who are new to the podcast. Um, I know we sound like children when we say this, but it's just kind of our P or uh, politically friendly, politically correct word instead of cursing on the podcast. It's our PG, PG term. PG term uh, for when they play a bad game. Because, I mean, yeah. relatively speaking, the offense just didn't show up. Jesus Lazardo shoved. It's kind of the story of the game. Yeah, like he shoved and he didn't shove. He looked really good. But again, we like had that opportunity to get him the third yeah. time around the order. And it's just like sometimes you get the timely hits and sometimes you don't. And they, I think they were flashing a stat. It was either about, it was about Lazardo where like his batting average against with Ron's scoring position has oscillated from like 150 to 300 to 150 in his games and during seasons of his career. It's like, oh, his Lazardo was lucky, then he was unlucky, then he got lucky again. So again, sometimes those balls are going to drop when men are on base. Sometimes they're not. This is just a game we really couldn't hit in general. But I think the big story here is David Peterson. Our boy. We've been that's our boy. We've been talking all, all offseason about how important he's going to be to this team. He becomes that much more important with Justin Verlander on the shelf for a period of time. And as you guys know, Jose Quintana on the shelf for the next few months. And this game started really rocking for him. It was a very, very nervous first couple of innings for Peterson. Through the first two innings, he threw 38 pitches, 17 balls. He gave up four hits and a walk, a home run to Jorge Soler, and only struck out one Marlin. And there were a lot of situations in those first two innings where if the Mets didn't make wonderful defensive plays behind him or turn double plays, things could have really unraveled fast. But he completely settled down. He found his groove, found his mechanics, kind of tinkered with his pitch mix a little bit. And over the innings three, four, and five, he threw 46 pitches, only 16 balls versus 30 strikes, only gave up four hits to those three innings, four strikeouts, no more walks, and no earned runs. And those walks are a big deal because during the spring, I think he only gave up one hit and walked eight batters. And this game was totally reversed. He gave eight hits, only walked one batter. Yeah. So the fact that Peterson was able to settle in 
And one adjustment I saw that made him settle in was the fact he only threw one four-seam fastball over those first two innings and then 13 over his next three innings. So out of the 14 fastballs he threw in the game, only one when he was struggling, and then the rest kind of got in there. We've been talking a lot. What throwing the sinker was that? What the pitch was? It was, was lots of to? sinkers, and he and did have his sinker. Did look good. It was he was riding it inside on lefties and was getting that backbreaking movement, trying front door. It was just kind of a situation where he didn't seem like he was really that comfortable placing it, and sometimes it caught too much plate and allowed some decent contact. That's how the Marlins were playing the ball and play a lot. But and he was still throwing plenty of sinkers even when he made the switch. It was kind of an even ratio though: four seamers and sinkers, two seamers, whatever you want to call them. But. He did get more of those four seamers in there, set up his slider much better, which he threw a lot. And that slider velocity held from the spring, and it still had all the bite we saw in it from last year. And he was dropping a lot more curveball, something else we saw in from the spring. So overall, we have to be very excited about the David Peterson start, fought through adversity, got through something that could have been a disaster, something that we've seen David Peterson struggle with at times in the past, where letting big innings kind of get out of hand, kind of show his emotions on the mound. He was taking deep breaths. He was settled. He was repeating his mechanics. And... Very, very, conf- very, very happy and confident going forward. Yeah, body language used to be a big thing with Peterson. He used to be like a big, like you could see how his start was going based on how he was standing on the mound. You didn't have to see the scoreboard. Didn't see that in this game. It's going to be a long season. We definitely need him. And the way that he was able to pick it up, like you said, is huge. It also really helps when the defense really is so yes. amazing behind them. The shift seems like not really an issue for the Mets when Lindor is making plays left and right everywhere. Jeff McNeil with great range at second base. Everybody was making great plays all series long. I know Marte had that weird drop at one point, but like that's, I don't know, maybe it got caught in the lights. That's what I like to pretend. Yeah, yeah. But the defense has been so good, and I think it's something that baseball fans, like as a team, kind of take for take for advantage a little bit, is that defense is so incredibly important and really can make a difference like it did in this game where it allows David Peterson, who's maybe working through a little bit of trouble, a little adversity, like you said, to feel a little bit more comfortable. Like, oh, my guys behind me are going to be able to make plays. I don't need to strike everybody out. I don't need to be perfect. And it stops the snowball when a guy makes a big play behind you. Get a double play, really erase an inning. And the other cool thing that happened in this game, again, poop fest. Co- term we've coined on this podcast, we're going to have one poop fest a series. That's going to happen. This is something that happened a little bit last year where Francisco Lindor and Pete Alonso are back-to-back in the order, and they're both so smart and so talented and so incredible. Lindor just, after his at-bat in the ninth inning, said something to Pete, and the Pete just came up and hit the home run. Yeah. So something about, and also this was against AJ Puck, who Pete was a college teammate with. And he mentioned yes. after the game, he's like, I faced him a million times. Like I knew exactly what he was going <laughs> to throw to me. So that was an easy home run, which is kind and of funny to see. Pete crushes left-handed pitching too. And yeah. like, it just, it was a, a recipe or perfect, a perfect little combination storm. there of like storm, perfect storm. There we go. See, it wouldn't be a messed up podcast if it's me forgetting like common sayings. That was a big thing last year. Yeah, and the last thing about this game is that the Marlins dropped the throwback unis, which is something they're going to do on Fridays this year, and those are so sensational. Some of the coolest jerseys in baseball with the teal hat. Oh, my God. Yeah. Are, are, where would you, like, rank them? Where would you rank them, like, if you're so giving, high. like, a tier list? Like, if you're going S, A, B, C, S, B, and the high. Those would definitely be an S. Those would yeah. be an S tier with, like, Mets Black, those crazy Royal Powder Blues that are so yeah. cool. And that's kind of all I can think of. And also, like, I hate, I mean, it wouldn't be an S tier, probably an A tier, but those old school Philly powder blues are kind of sick, too. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, they, they kind of are. Yeah. The Marlins low key have some really good jerseys, except the ones that they wear every single day. Those jerseys <laughs> are awful. They're terrible. They need a rebrand. But like the Sugar King ones are so sick, too. Did they? And you see them a lot in the ballpark, too. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's a popular one. I would, I would wear that, too, if I was a Marlins fan. There's not much else to be excited about with them. Jazz Chisholm hit that big home run, too, and did the Euro step, and he's really cool, but he can't play center field. So, we'll, yeah. We'll, yeah, yeah, we'll take that. Like you said, happy to play him early in the year when he doesn't have a clue yet. Moving on to game three, this was, I feel like, the Marcana game. Marcana necessarily hadn't been playing that well in the first two games, a little bit up and down. It's early in the season. You can't really care too much. But game three, Marcana really put the team on his back a little bit. A home run, getting on base, hits. I mean, everything that you want out of Marky Cheerios, he did. Mets fans also pick up Marcana because he's kind of the guy who links the top of the order to the bottom of the order, and people kind of look at him with the telescope, but it's like, that guy in that spot in the order should be better. But Marcana was like over 20% better in league average last year, and then he has a power outburst in this game where he has a home run, scores three runs, three hits, a walk, an RBI, and it's like, oh, yeah, Marcana pretty good. And and made a big play at home plate against Nick Fortes, lower the yeah. shoulder, knocked the ball out, got us a run. Yeah, we've we've been next to Canna. He's a he's he's a strong looking human. Like Sneaky you don't pick. see it. I feel like on the field because he's not like conventionally large, where you're like six foot four and two hundred and fifty pounds, like a linebacker. But then you get next to him, and you're like, oh yeah, this guy, this guy's really in good shape. And if if you were Nick Fortes, I wouldn't want to be Nick Fortes. Let's just put it that way. Even with the gear on, that probably didn't feel great. No, Marquand is listed six two two ten. I think that might be a little bit light, honestly. He's that's a big strong. Guy. That's 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 a strong six two. 
Solid. That's what it is. Solid. solid. Yes. Just and like Cheerios. All, yeah, just exactly. Just like Cheerios. I eat your Cheerios every morning. I'm at my parents' house. They always got Cheerios here. I've eaten so many Cheerios this weekend. That's why Dude, Mark Hanna had this big game. I, my parent, like my family never ate cereal. Like we didn't really eat cereal, but there is always Cheerios in the house. Always. It's got to be a New Jersey or like a Italian thing, maybe. I was messing around with my family today. My aunt was over for dinner, getting some good family time in. And like that generation, like the I think is that I think it's Generation X, the so people after the baby boomers, people born know. like 60s, 60s, 70s around then. They have so many of these things that they're like set in that like the, this generation always does. And like I think feel like Cheerios are one thing. I feel like just like always having like milk in the house, even though no one really ever drinks it before. It's like you go out, you just get milk. You just always yep. get milk. <laughs> you, just, you just have milk. No, no one drinks the milk. We have to in get case- milk. It's in case company comes over. You never know if they need a cup of coffee. <laughs> a cup of coffee, put some milk in it. You want sugar? But then the other thing that I was messing around my aunt with today big time is that for some reason, people in the East Coast, tri-state area, between the ages of, say, like 49 and 61, no, not one adult's ever tried Indian food. They got they get stuck in their head that, like, I don't like curry. It smells bad. It messes up your stomach. But like, <laughs> like, maybe curry can smell bad sometimes, but, like, actually, the spices in your food are amazing for your stomach, and it's just delicious cuisine. And, like, we were, I was talking about it with them, and they all looked around, and they were like, yeah, none of us have ever, ever tried any food, and none of us ever will. And I, I think I'm with them, and it's, I mean, it has to do with my well, You're an old disease. man. Yeah, well, and yeah. the Crohn's, you know, like, the, the sensitive stomach is a little bit tough to, to probably have some Indian food, because I know what it does to, like, normal people's stomachs, so for me, probably pass, but... We do know that there's an amazing place in a story that you still have not yet tried, which I'm, I'm shocked. We've been talking about yeah. it forever that Action Bronson went to. What was it called? Oh, the Roti Boti. Roti Boti, yeah. It's, it's on your list. We'll get there yeah, eventually. Yeah. Shout out the Indica house on uh, Myrtle Ave in Bushwick. That place is the bomb. But just a weird thing I know this weekend. Then get back to baseball for a second. Yeah, we, we, had, to, we had to get on a little tangent. Yeah. I'm in, I'm in Westfield. I'm hanging out with a crazy crew of people all weekend. So I gotta, you got to talk about it a little bit. Tyler McGill in this game, I think, was someone that Mets fans were a little bit apprehensive about. Just heading out of the spring training. His command was a little off. His velocity wasn't really there. You didn't really see the way his secondary pitches were like kind of meshing with his fastball and the rest of his repertoire. But in a big park, should be noted, against not so good of an offense, also should be noted, McGill was solid here. And he pitched, again, well enough for, I think, us to be comfortable with him moving forward in this hopefully seemingly short period of time where Justin Verlander will not be available. There was a lot of good and bad, so I'm just going to throw it all out there now. The command was very iffy, especially early. It felt like he was behind in every single count in the first two innings when a lot of Marlins were on base. But he really, really, really featured that slider. He threw it as much as his fastball, tied for the most thrown pitches he had the entire game, which is also kind of notable because he didn't throw any against lefties. I think it was like three or four total. Instead, against those lefties, he mixed in lots of curveballs and change-ups relatively to how many he threw against righties. And it was cool to see him do that curveball because he dropped 11 and got six called strikes with it. That's kind of nice. So just getting those free strikes with that curveball, which is something that, you know, maybe that doesn't happen the next time he goes through the league and now that everyone has film on this curveball in regular season games. But that was a very cool wrinkle for Tyler McGill in the game where it seemed like early, not everything was working. And he kind of gutted out through five innings when really didn't feel like early he was going to get there. And I wonder if that's something that comes from like being around a Scherzer because Scherzer doesn't really throw his slider left-handed hitters like almost at all. I think he goes with a cutter against lefties. And he loves to drop in that curveball to try and just get a little bit of a free strike in there. So I wonder if just being around a guy like Max Scherzer, it kind of rubbed off on him. I mean, I know we spoke to him and he said that, you know, they're talking all the time. He's learning a lot from these guys. But it's cool, I feel like, to see it kind of in practice in a real, you know, regular season game. And like you said, overall positive start, effective, I think would be the word that I use for Tyler McGill, which is... He was effective. He's exactly what we needed, especially when the offense was swinging the bat a lot better. Omar Nervais as well kind of had his welcome to be in a New York Met moment. Couple big hits, couple big RBIs. We haven't been used to seeing this stuff from the catcher position in quite some time, quite some time. So it's nice to see Omar Nervais, who has shown the ability to be a very good offensive catcher, starting to swing it well as well. Absolutely. And on top of that, four shutout innings from the Mets pen. New bullpen man Dennis Santana looked very good this weekend. He threw a very yeah. easy inning in the sixth. Drew Smith came in. Brooks Raley got the last out of the seventh. Adam Alavino got two strikeouts after giving up two hits in the eighth. And David Robertson, another nice, calm ninth inning. Dennis Santana is a guy who I feel like we've always talked about. Whenever we see him, we go, throws hard. His stuff moves. Like, why why doesn't he stick? What's going on here? So it's good to see that he's starting to look a little comfortable with the Mets. He came in in game four, I believe, as well and was effective. And there's only, there's only two weeks with Jeremy Hefner. Imagine two yeah. months. Right here, he's going to be one of the best relievers in baseball. But That's this, the sprinkle. Yeah, so it's a little Jeremy Hefner, sprinkle of magic fairy dust. But it is now cool. After this first weekend, we've learned a lot about how this bullpen will be managed and how Bucks can handle it. It seems like we are going to have a pretty traditional setup here where Santana and Smith are kind of like the sixth, seventh inning guys. 
Rayleigh out of Vino were kind of the seventh, eighth inning guys, and then David Robertson's going to be the ninth inning guy. There could be yeah. different situations where different guys get used in different spots depending on the matchups, but I do think, again, as Mets fans, we have learned a lot this weekend about how this bullpen is going to look moving forward. Yeah, and I feel pretty good about it. feel pretty good. Like, I, the Marlins are pesky. Like we said, they're really, really annoying, but at the end of the day, they were able to limit them from scoring a lot of runs. That's exactly what we need, especially when the Mets offense is good. The Mets offense is good. Hold up the sign. All right, let's move on to game four. This is the most recent game that happened yesterday for you guys when you're listening to this. The Kodai Senga debut, Major League debut. By the way, did you notice, did you know about this, that on all jerseys for rookies making their debut this year, they put a patch. I don't know if it's on the left or right sleeve, but it says MLB debut on it, which is kind of cool. Saw Anthony Volpe have it on opening day for the Yankees. Kodai Senga wore it today. And I believe they're then going to use that patch to be like new one of ones in cards, which is like for you card heads out there, like kind of a really, really cool thing in football. They do laundry tags. That's like the one of one is you get the laundry tag from the game. So I think this MLB debut patch is going to be one of the coolest things that happens to cards, especially for a guy like Kodai Senga, who looked really good and he had the sick glove with the ghost on it i mean he was just i know it started i know it started a little rough but he really settled in and looked pretty awesome well we definitely have to talk about that because again i also didn't know that thing about the patch especially with the cards yes. that's incredible that's i love when like the, the league and like marketing kind of gets together and does something cool like that instead of stuff that's not cool for a change but <laughs> it it is important to talk about this kodai saying a start like the totality of it because in the first inning people were tweeting we even got tweets at Mets up like, oh my God, this guy stinks. Like, this is a disaster. How could we have done we this? Told, we told you guys. We told you guys what was going to happen. We got it at, slow, easy with Kodai Sang. Easy. Because then also, as he moved through the game, people are like, oh my God, he's he's going to pitch. He's going to pitch game one of the NLCS. Like, <laughs> this guy's this guy's the best pitcher I've ever seen in my life. So I think, again, we said there's so many things he's adjusting to, and his command wasn't great in Japan as it was. So things are really going to go up and down. And I think it's kind of cool for us to talk about and analyze that in the first start, we saw all the up and down in one shot. Like this is going to be Kodai Sanga this year personified. And the first inning was so shaky. It was terrifying. It was really cool that we got him runs beforehand though, because I'm yeah. sure there were a lot of nerves. And the fact that we got hustle runs from Jeff McNeil after a tough at bat, I tweeted from the Mets stuff that was a frozen rope, rope by Jeff. It was a classic. A little, little funny joke. Little funny joke. Line, like to do line drive in the book. Line drive in the book. And especially they did give him a single on that, which I thought was kind of cool, <laughs> even though he just ran right through the glove at first base. But Cool to get those runs on the board. Also, Canada took some very tough pitches before that to load the bases, even though it was a four-pitch walk. couple on the black to get Jeff in position to drive those runs home. So, guy making his major league debut, take a deep breath. We have runs home for you already. This is good stuff. And then in that first inning, we got through like five batters, and I was terrified. I was oh, so yeah. scared for Kodai Sanga himself, for, for me as a fan, and then just for the onslaught of Mets fans, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the people who are just going to get crazy when one thing goes kind of wrong. He had thrown 23 pitches in the first inning without getting it out. The Marlins already had a run home. The bases were loaded, and he'd already thrown a wild pitch. Yeah, I mean, my it was... Dad a, texted, my dad texted it, me the classic, you watching this? And I was like, oh, God. Yeah, yep. I am. I, I got one of those two. I was at the airport in Dallas. Uh, met Taiwan Walker there, in case you guys cared. I told him good luck, but even, you know, Phillies. I, I hope you guys don't do well. But, yeah, it was it was a little bit, a little bit shaky, a little bit... Uh, Oh, kind of felt at some point. But I think what's really, really cool about this is that Kodai Sengen was able to get through this. And you talk about, like, pitching in adverse, and we talk about David Peterson getting out of jams. While Kodai Sengen definitely had a bit of a, I don't want to say a disaster first inning, but it was an opportunity for a disaster in the first inning. It is really cool to see that he got through it and didn't really let it affect the rest of the game, which it very much could Talk about snowballing with one of the best pitchers in the league, and Kodai Sengen kind of stopped it. He didn't even let snowball in that moment. Even as things looked crazy all around him, he was very composed. He kept, he just, then he just started executing. He got back to back strikeouts and Starling made a nice play down the line to end that first inning. It seemed like once he ended that first inning, he was able to breathe that sigh of relief. Again, he never wavered. Looking at Kodai Sang on the mound, he absolutely never wavered. And when that inning ended, he hung out on that rail and he congratulated every single guy moving back in. He was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And now you guys got me, now I got you. Because after that, he threw 36 pitches in that first inning. He got through the second, third, and fourth with 27 combined. He faced only one batter over the minimum until from the end of the first inning until he was pulled in the sixth. And a little weird, cool, little nugget caveat from that sixth inning. He was left in to face Jazz Chisholm, who's presumably the best hitter in this Marlins lineup, and the lefty, Kodai Sango, who's a righty. This would be the third time Jazz was seeing him. Buck waited until he got the, Kodai got the lefty out to bring in the righty, Dennis Santana. So that's definitely a factor of the fact that this ghost fork is really good at getting hitters out from both sides of the plate, that he's comfortable enough with Kodai Sanga, his first major league start, the third time facing 
a perennial all-star, best hitter in the other team, who was a lefty, to get him before going to the bullpen. That's a major sign of confidence, and it's a really cool thing about Kodai's skill set that I don't think we were really prepared for. The ghost fork is... It's it's a real pitch. It's Ooh. a real pitch. Like I remember, everyone remembers the gyro ball, right, with Daisuke Matsuzaka, and that was an effective pitch too. Granted, we were a little bit younger, so I don't remember. I don't. I wasn't watching his pitches as as you know intently as I am with Kodai Senga now doing the official podcast of the Mets. But I mean, from what we saw, this pitch looks when it when it's like cooking like that, you, you just you don't hit it. There's a reason it's called the ghost fork ball. At some point, you see, and all of a sudden, it's gone, and it just dropped out of the zone, and like. I mean, he had major, like all these major league hitters, even a guy like Yuli Gurriel, I believe, at one point, who's like a professional. I mean, these guys hit 300 multiple times in his career. Gets what up there, he's like, so I, I, I don't know what I just saw. Like that pitch, it, it, it's gone. I don't know what to do with that. No, the ghost was ghosting. And we've seen pitchers with this very similar repertoire as Kodai Sanga, where if you could sit upper 90s and drop an amazing forkball split there, kind of put those together as like hard style changeups with more movement. Kevin Gaussman has basically ridden this repertoire to becoming one of the best pitchers in baseball over the last three years. Like, this is something that is very, very tangible. If you have these two things working, you can be elite, as good as any pitcher in the league. And we saw that upside with Sanga today. That goes for got nine whiffs on 14 swings. The Marlins had absolutely no idea what was happening. And we'll say now, we got to pull back a little bit because we got to remember, we got to keep you guys real in the messed up podcast, keep you guys grounded. That was Kodai's only pitch with multiple whiffs. And that was something we said was going to be something, not of a concern, but something that we had to keep track of as the season went on. The sweeper looked amazing, like it was really biting, but it only got one swing and miss, and it doesn't seem like the Marlins were really kind of getting after it that often. It wasn't really kind of thing they saw and were like, I have to swing at that because it looked like it's going to stay in the zone. It seemed like they were picking it up somewhat easily. But that fastball sat 97, sat 97, peaked up above 99, and it got 12 called strikes. And it was something he was really leaning on early in counts to get ahead so he could drop the ghost fork. I was about to say, and I think that the the ghost fork, and even like, I know you said the sweeper wasn't necessarily getting a lot of swings and misses, but I think like that probably tells me that the tunneling on these pitches is really good in that maybe like you can pick up the sweeper because it, it did seem like... And it doesn't I, really look I, like those other pitches. Yeah, it doesn't look like those other pitches, so maybe it's a little bit easier to recognize because it's just... Spin, it, I'm sure. Yeah, the spin and everything, but like being able to get 12 called strikes on your fastball is pretty like not common in baseball. No, it's actually incredible. And that alone is something that's really useful for him. I do wonder if, again, as he goes around the league once and now we get more people get more film on him, that some people realize like he's going to throw you a fastball outside of the first, second pitch of the at-bat. So just be ready for that. But he's still got a called and swinging strike rate, which is your called plus swinging strikes divided by your pitches. A stat developed by Alex Fast a few years ago for pitcher list. It's proven to be very predictive and a kind of a mark of how good the pitchers are. And it's good to take it pitch by pitch. You can see when strikes are called and when guys are missing with their bats. It was at least 28% every single pitch he threw. And that was the ghost fork, the fastball, the sweeper, and even a couple cutters. Again, the sweeper and the cutter, he didn't throw that many, so the sample's not as great. The league average for CSW rate is 30%. And the fastball and the ghost fork, of course, were significantly higher than that. So those two pitches leading the repertoire, it's very cool that those were able to get enough guys out, keep enough guys off balance, keep that going. Sweeper, that's still a pitch that's very much being developed by Kodai Senga. Yeah. And that's a pitch that, while it is good for swings and misses, it's very good for limiting hard contact and possibly even getting ground balls. Not so much. It kind of is more for like a lazy fly ball pitch. But Sango was able to find a couple ground balls today, which I guess because that forcing fastball doesn't have like the traditional hoppy movement. It kind of has a little more run, but more ground balls than I expected him to get. And just those pitches were working off each other so well that we should feel really, really, really good about this debut. Yeah, I mean, end of the day, that's exactly what it should be. It should feel really good. Don't go to the crazy highs. Don't go to the crazy lows. Just appreciate what we saw. Know that he's got a lot of talent and know that he's got a sick glove as well. That glove. I don't, did you see it? Did you get a picture yeah, of it? So, so cool. I mean, like the blue with the ghosts and everything. Everyone was loving it on Twitter, too. Like it was being posted everywhere. Yeah, lots of uh, manga vibes. Yes, lots of manga vibes. So shout Kodai. Great first start. Super happy, especially because it led to a Mets win. We also got to talk about a big day for Mr. James Schiano because he had been banging the Tommy Pham drum all offseason. The Mets finally sign him. And Tommy Pham has his legacy game in game four of the season. After a rough spring, we got a little insight, though, as to why maybe the spring was a little bit rough, maybe why the start of the season was a little rough. Tommy Pham apparently couldn't see. Can, can you believe this? Tommy Pham said he got new contacts on Friday and he can see again. It's like crystal clear. He's like, and I'm back. Like, I'm good. I, I couldn't believe that it was my vision. Can you even imagine playing, doing anything, honestly, with like bad vision's got to be tough. Imagine playing major league baseball, trying to hit a pitch, trying to recognize spin. Whatever that doctor did with those contacts, I mean, he should, he should be given a bonus because it looks like Tommy Pham uh, might be back. 
Definitely might be back. And he played both games against lefties. He hit leadoff on Sunday against lefty Trevor Rogers. Very prominent spot in the order. He was a triple short of the cycle. Yes. Marlins are cowards for walking him in the ninth inning. Absolute cowards for letting him <laughs> for that happening. Ended up with a double, a homer, a single, stolen base, a walk, a run scored, three RBIs. Come on, baby. That's huge. And we did get a lot of questions on Twitter about the fact of how much players were shuffled in and out this weekend. Mm. The Mets in the first three weeks of the season are playing, I guess, four weeks, technically. They're playing 24 games. 18 of them are going to be on the road. They're going to have a lot of early mornings, a lot of late nights, and they're going to be playing a lot of days and days and days after one another. So I think it is cool that the season's opening, but hey, we know there's going to be a lot of wear and tear in these guys. Get guys out of the lineup now. Get Marte a day off. Get Nimmo a day off. Get Escobar a day off. Get these guys to get fresh as much as possible. And and this is something that I think I was just texting you about this morning when the lineup came out, because we were like, oh, Sunday lineup, time of him hitting leadoff, just like how stupid we are. But We've heard a lot of players very specifically talk about the comfort of hitting in the same spot in the order every single day. And we as fans are like, or people who, you know, like numbers are like, oh my God, just move everyone up. Go Marte, Lindor, Alonso. So if there's a big spot at the end of the game, we get Marte and Lindor up instead of Fam and Marte up. But again, we're starting to talk to more players, starting to get to know more players. A lot of players really say they have a very comfortable feeling knowing when they come to the park every single day, they know where they're hitting in the lineup. Yep. There's something something to it. Yeah, and that's something analytics and numbers don't really catch. So pretty cool to see that players support that, and that's where the Mets are heading with the way they're going to draw a lineup card out every day. We'll see if it works out over the course of the season, but in this series specifically, in this game specifically, it is something that worked. Also, how about our boy little Timmy Locastro getting hit by two pitches? For those of you who are baseball fans, uh, there's a great YouTuber by the name of Foolish Baseball. I think everyone's a baseball fan probably listening yeah, to this. Yeah, but like, you know, a YouTube baseball fan. Foolish Baseball, great YouTuber. Shout out to him, friend of mine. He kind of put Tim LaCastro a little bit on the map, like personally, because Tim LaCastro is a really interesting player in that he's unbelievably fast. He's one of the fastest players in the league, and he has a really, really amazing ability of getting hit by pitches. I believe the video was about how Tim LaCastro can steal every base, including first, and he talks about how Tim LaCastro gets hit by so many pitches in such a small sample, and then it allows him to steal second base and steal third base or whatever it is. He's just a, he's a pesky little player. And I, I like that he's on this team. He adds a little something that we had at points last year, like when we had Terrence Gore and Travis Jankowski. Gives us that speed off the bench. Gives us another guy who can play the outfield. But he also gives us a little bit more upside, too. I think he's a little bit more of a ball player, a little more positive there than just speed. Yeah, definitely positive and speed. And this is a way to wrap up a really good series. Yep, everything worked. We got we got to give guys day off on Sunday. We won the game pretty handedly after the first inning. Never actually even trailed in this game, as dicey as it got. And... You beat a team you're better than. That's really all we can ask for these Mets to do. Luis Arias was a pest. He's always going to be a pest. Always. Nick, Nick Fortes is a new patented Mets killer. Gene Segura didn't even hit, and he still made a couple lights out plays at third <laughs> base. That's just the Gene Segura thing against the Mets. He kills us. But this team just did a lot to do well. We got a lot of stats here, courtesy of Johnny Stats. Mets didn't strike out more than eight times in any of these games, including just five each on Thursday and Sunday. Awesome. Mets stole a base in all four games, which is pretty cool. And we've seen stolen bases way up across baseball this whole weekend. I was about to say, I think they said the most stolen bases since 1901 on opening day, which it was is 07. really cool. 07, okay. Mm-hmm. 1907, yeah, most stolen bases. Uh, and, like, the success rate was really high, too. So, I don't know. How do you feel about just, like, the state of baseball right now with, like, the pitch clock, the shift, the new bases, the way that the game is being played now? I mean, personally to me, it didn't feel any different. Like, I was like, I, I think this is great, and we just get a lot more action in a shorter amount of time. That's really, like, my comment. Yeah, I think everyone should be pretty thrilled about it. I still think the pitch clock has kinks to be worked out. I think yeah. Scherzer echoed this a lot, that just sometimes they're... they're and this is just because the umpires aren't really used to it yet. It's, it's a little rigid right now. It probably shouldn't be this rigid forever moving forward. But the rule itself, what it's doing for the game, I think is amazing. We're seeing players like work a little harder. We're seeing that cardio up. We're seeing f- fielders more in command. I saw before we got on recording, I was watching Sunday Night Baseball, and Trey Turner was out of breath being mic'd up like an inning in the field because he was just moving there and moving here. Like things are just, this feels like much more of a sport again instead of guys just like hanging out and not hanging out. I have to take that back. That was ridiculous. I don't really mean that. <laughs> but it's just like the fact that we're just seeing more, like more balls in play, more guys running, like a lot more activity. It's just, I liked it a lot. I was watching tons of baseball all weekend because yep. it's like, this is like Christmas. It's awesome. Mean, I'm it's sure amazing. you too. I'm sure most of you guys listening too. It's just I sat on my couch all weekend and watch as much baseball as I possibly could when I was around. But it's cool. It's cool to see the game. Cool to see the game making positive movement forward. Yeah. No, a couple other fun stats about the Mets this weekend, too. Mets struck out 41 Marlins uh, for a team that's not supposed to actually strike out that much. They're supposed to. These guys that were brought in were about putting the ball in play, struck out a ton, and the Mets bullpen only allowed one run in 13 and two-thirds innings pitched with three walks. I mean, if if you want anything, 
to, to get excited about with the bullpen. That stat right there should tell you everything. Weirdly enough, though, the Mets are not back in Miami till September. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, yeah. I mean, we'll talk about them next week as well on at the home opener, which should be a lot of fun. But and then we can say goodbye until Aaron Rodgers has at least 10 touchdowns with the Jets. Yeah, there you go. So, really, really excited about what happened this opening series. Just a little minor league thing. Brett Beatty's ripping the cover off the ball. Francisco Alvarez ripping the cover off the ball. They'll be coming soon. They'll be coming soon. Yeah, and again, we we told you guys this about this, but the, the baby thing is going to happen. It's just like we need to play some game theory here. And we also, he just need to like really go down, really just like absolutely force the issue. And through, what, three minor league games, I think he had three home runs. He had a grand slam on Saturday. He had a couple more hits on Sunday. He's making great plays at third base. I think he has like over a 500 batting average through his first three games. It's just he's really, he's really just crushing the ball. It's, Did you catch the YouTube comments after our season preview? Someone was really upset that we were not uh, up in arms about Brett Beatty not starting the year at third base. They're like, ah, that one. these Mets guys, they don't say anything. We're like, no, we just like rationally think about like everything. And you take the information that you have. Again, three out of four in the first series. Pretty good, pretty good start to the year. And that was with, you know, uh, doom and gloom from some Mets fans. Glad glad that a lot of you that listen to us aren't those fans, though. We're, uh, we're happy that you're here with us. Let's go ahead and preview the Mets versus Brewers series. But first, we actually have to bring in Johnny Stats. I didn't, I, I forgot about this. It's the first game of the, or first se- uh, series of the season. We got to bring back the estimate. Now, the people still do not know who lost the estimate from last year. Of course, the punishment is wearing a tuxedo to opening day. We will both be there. You will be able to see us if you were at the game on opening day. I don't know if the video will be out yet. I, I know Vito's working on that right now with somebody, so I assume it will be out by opening day, so you will know. But someone will be wearing a tuxedo, and we had to bring it back. We had to bring Estimate back for a second season. You guys loved it. John was the uh, creator of Estimate, and I'm excited to see what the first one of the year is. John, what do you got for us? Guys, how'd they play baseball for 100 years without the pitch clock? I, I, I was thinking that to myself <laughs> today, like, it's incredible. It's revolutionary. Um, it's awesome. But yes, we are back with Estimate Season 2. So we were talking before the show, and I think that it makes the most sense to break this up in the first half, second half, kind of like they do in the Florida State League almost. So um, this is going to be the first Estimate for the first half of the season, if you would. And that's going to be nothing else than how many pitch clock violations will we see in the Mets-Brewers series? I think there were four in this uh, in this okay. series. And I, I have to say, so obviously I'm all for pace of play. It's great games. I mean, the Padre game today ended in, I think, two hours and three minutes. So, wow. you know, they... I mean, the Mets game on Friday was two hours, eight minutes, nine minutes. It was in a flash. It was actually almost too fast. Like, I was watching with some friends and, yeah. like, they came over for the game and then all of a sudden the game is just over. You know, usually in the past you got, like, at least three, three and a half hours to hang out with the game sort of uh, in the background, but not here. I will say I'm one thing I'm nervous about with the pitch clock because we haven't been at City Field yet for a pitch clock game. I am nervous about going to a concession stand or going to the bathroom. You used to be able to miss about a batter. Yeah. Now you're kind of missing a half inning with the pitch clock. I'm a little also, scared about that. Also, you know, the, the the alcohol sales, seventh inning. It's a quick cutoff now. It's like a good hour <laughs> and 25 minutes. You got to get your drinks in. Yeah, no. Get to the stadium early. It's, it's, it's funny how many different corners of the sport are being changed by the pitch clock, things that no one has thought about. And we won't actually realize them until they kind of smack us in the face. So, but all in all, an incredible time. The one thing I will say about pitch clock violations is that I've found umpires have not been, I guess, I guess demonstrative enough with their calls, especially in a stadium where unless the count on the board changes and everyone is looking at it, you know, it yeah. will, there was one today where the umpire came out from behind the plate. I think it was Edwin Moscoso behind the plate today. And it looked like he was just calling yeah. time. And then he turns mm-hmm. around. He's looking up to the press box and he points to his watch. But when you're watching at home and you have the center field camera angle, you're not seeing that. So I, I just no. feel like either an announcement needs to be made by the umpire or some other very clear-cut way. A strike has been assessed. The ball has been assessed for a violation. Well, the irony is also even just when a pitcher – throws a ball in a game, there is no real call for it either. It's just like a silent ball goes on the board. Like if there's a strike, he could walk out front and be like, strike one. But for the ball, there really isn't even an option for that. Yeah, I guess. You just kind of quietly say like ball. Yeah, which which is why maybe uh, some sort of an announcement would be good. I don't know. I I, I think that after, you know, two, three weeks, four weeks, which is a month, um, you know, fans will be used to this and um, it'll kind of just be second nature. 
that's where I'm hoping or where I think this gets to. But right now there's, there's a, there's a learning curve in stadiums. It's kind kind of weird. Yeah. But anyway, speak. No, Thursday is going to be a trip. Thursday is going to be a trip. Thursday, one of you will be wearing a tuxedo. Um, Now we start the journey to see who will be whatever the next punishment is. By the way, guys, when you tell the listeners, how are we going to determine what the second punishment is going to be? So we want you guys at home to be tweeting us whatever way you can reach out to us. If you see us at the stadium, say, I've got, if you got a great idea for what the punishment can be for the first half, let us know. Obviously, tuxedo is always in play, but we don't also want to do the same thing over and over again. We want to keep it fresh. We want to keep it fun. So as long as you guys can come up with a realistic punishment, not something that's like absolutely crazy, like, you know, streak on the field, like that's not going to happen. That's, yeah, that's not a reason. real punishment, but like a tuxedo to the game or I don't know. Maybe maybe we don't do nine hot dogs again. That's a, that was a tough one. James James really is still bad. recovering. But that, that, that has to be something that's like I mean, estimate we're gonna do this for like a hundred. The first half punishment is almost more meaningful than the second half punishment. It's gonna be more games. By the time yeah, we get true. to the All Star game in Seattle, it's the middle of July. It's a long way from now, and I think there's even a chance we're both at the All Star game. So yeah, we could even incorporate something in Seattle into the punishment. Maybe like someone's got to eat like a thousand grasshoppers. That becomes that's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. So just you guys, yeah, hit us up with some estimate punishments to, if you guys want to see Mark doing it, because of course he's going to lose this first half. No, no shot. No shot. No shot. So, James, you got your number? I got my number written down already. I do have my number. Yes. All right. John, you want to count us down? Yeah, here? let's do it. First estimate of 2023. Reveal in three, two, one. Ooh. Mm, nice. Perfect. Off to a great start. Okay. Two, two. I'm, I'm I had confident. Two, I had two and I switched to a three. I honestly was gonna go with one, but that was like James. James is not gonna pick two. Like that's that's too low I of a number almost, for James. I pick two. That's kind of funny. You I also got thought ahead about of me before I even got there. I thought about zero as well. I was like, what if they just don't have one? But I feel like it's happened like in every single game, and it's probably gonna happen like John said for the first month. So, all right, John, thank you so much for the estimate. We will check back with you on the next episode to see who ends up winning. I think it is now time for us to preview this Brewer series, like we just mentioned. Brewers are a good team. Brewers are a good team. A team that Brewers me and you have team. spoke a lot about off camera. A team that I thought could definitely win the division. I think in your predictions, you actually had them winning the National League Central. Mm-hmm. Sneaky, good lineup. I think that's the way I say it. Sneaky good. I don't think it's a good lineup, but it's sneaky good. I, w- I would say their lineup is deeper than you would imagine just from playing yes. this team in the last couple of years. They're coming off winning two out of three against the Cubs this weekend in Chicago this weekend, a team that was vastly improved, a team that has an okay rotation, an okay lineup in the Cubs. Again, I think the Brewers are significantly better than the Cubs, but they're better than them. This Brewers lineup right now still has Christian Yelich at the top, Jesse Winker, recent addition, Willie Adamas, Ryan Telez in the middle, coming off huge seasons, Brian Anderson, old friend, recent addition, and then Garrett Mitchell, Bryce Terang, Joey Weimer. A couple prospects are up there trying to make a play, and there's another guy they added. Who is it? Luke oh, Voigt. And, and Luke Voigt. No, there's another guy they added in the offseason. Well, I can't remember right now. They added another guy to this team? I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Keep talking. Luis Arias is on the team, of yeah, course. Yeah, Luis Arias on the team. You it's said just, Winker, didn't you? You said, yeah, Winker. said Winker. And he's hitting second. He's presumably like one of the best hitters in that lineup. And that one through Oh, William four, Contreras. William Contreras. There it is. Yes. So that one through five, when Contreras is playing, of Yelich, Winker, Adamas, Telez, Contreras, that's that's kind of a legitimate one through five. There's no there's not many easy there's no easy outs there. And so I got a lot of guys who could put the ball out of the park. So yes. this is a lineup that is significantly better than we've seen in years past. And we know the rotation is great. And we are getting two out of three of their studs going into the series. And also, all Mets fans, be aware. Three game series, two day games. We're playing two o'clock Eastern time on Monday and one forty Eastern time on Wednesday. So everybody be aware. Set your clocks. Don't miss those games. Monday afternoon, Brewers home opener. We have Carlos Carrasco versus Freddy Peralta. Peralta is a guy who was one of the best pitchers in baseball, literally, in 2021. He dealt with a lot of injuries last year, but very talented guy. Going to see him. And then Tuesday night, 7.40. Another interesting start time there. Be aware of that weird, weird times of the series. Max Scherzer, second star of the year against Wade Miley, a guy who is just straight junk, just crafty lefty. He can be very annoying and unfortunate. Look at Tommy Fan for another legacy game there. Did you see Johnny Stats stat he just dropped us? Apparently, four of six Wade Miley starts in against the Mets in his career have ended 5-4. So, okay, so, uh, yeah, if, if you guys bet responsibly, I mean, that's something that you probably get insane odds on just in case. That's <laughs> a weird anomaly. And then Wednesday afternoon, travel day, home opener eve, David Peterson versus Cor- Corbin Burns and Asaf. Which, I, I we've hit Corbin Burns okay, right? Like I don't know. I don't if John remember. Can get some stats on that split right now. That'd be great because I can't type it fast enough. Uh, you know what but, I was thinking of? I was thinking Jose Peraza, but that's he owns Josh Hader. Josh Hader, Corbin yeah. Burns. Now, now he's out in San Diego. We're going to get him next week. But this Brewers team is annoying. Corbin Burns didn't have a good start opening day against the Cubs, but he's 
one of the best pitchers in all of baseball. Second year in a row, he had a bad start in Chicago on opening day. So I think it might just be like a Chicago. It's cold. It was like 35 degrees and windy. Like that place has got to be miserable to play in in April 1st. Or I was technically March at that time. Got to be a miserable place to be. Yeah, and he's just he's just really good. Like he's so and he's good. used to pitching inside too. He's used to pitching inside, yeah. all, all comfy, cozy. He'll be comfy, cozy, and I'm sure he's gonna be nice. But John just told us uh, in September last year we scored five runs against him. So take the Mets it. have had some success. We'll take it. The lineup's good. Trust the process. Trust the team. Trust the lineup, and I think we'll be okay. Uh, you said it was Carrasco, then Scherzer, Carrasco, then Scherzer, Peterson. Cool. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's going to be good baseball. This could be like a, a playoff matchup at some point, too. Uh, both teams are very much playoff teams, I think. Uh, Brewers maybe aren't getting as much respect. They'll respect on their name. They're a good team, and Craig Council is one of the best managers in baseball, without a doubt. So I'm excited. I'm excited. I also love day games. I love day games. There's yeah. nothing like a day baseball game. Well, yeah, that comes from not having a job. I have a job. I just <laughs> don't have a nine-to-five. Listen... I mean, you know what I'm doing behind the scenes. I'm going to be working during the, the yeah. during the early hours of the day this year. So we'll we'll see how it goes. 11 a.m. 11 a.m. Yeah, it's it's a good start time for your boy. <laughs> it's listen. I'm going to use the YouTuber life to my advantage at all times. As you should. I'll yeah, ne- I'll never feel bad about it. But I think that pretty much wraps up this episode here. Uh, just uh, the anniversary of Gil Hodges' death uh, today. He passed away. How many years ago was this? I got to do quick math. 1972. So that is what 51. 51 years ago since Gil Hodges passed away, legendary Mets manager, of course. And uh, yeah, this is the this is the end of the episode, guys. See, game one, game two, game three, game four, series one of the season has officially been put in the books, and we come out with a three to four series win, which is absolutely phenomenal. We love it. Thank you guys so much for listening and watching to this episode of the of the Mets Up podcast. Remember to follow us on all our social media at Mets Up on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our producer Vito is going to be working hard to make sure you guys show him love on the video side and on the TikTok and Instagram side as well. We really do appreciate it. Uh, If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Odyssey, drop us a rating, drop us a review. Most important, download and subscribe. It really does help us out. We do appreciate it. Follow James on Twitter at James underscore Shiano. And you can follow me at GiraffeNeckMark with a C. We will catch you guys after the Brewer Series for the home opener season preview, all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, let's go Mets. See ya. Let's go Mets, baby. See you guys next time.